0: Well, good morning, church. Ushers, if you'll come forward, we'll share in our offering. First thing, thank you for giving. Thank you for being a part of the a church ministry. Uh, just as we share in the offering, you should have received a letter this past week or two weeks ago about an end-year end year giving. Uh, our church, like many other groups, are very dependent upon year-end giving, as many people plan their giving for the end of the year and getting ready for the uh, taxes and all of those things. Um, if you receive an envelope in the mail, by all means, if you can use that, uh, also, as you each door. There's an envelope there. I'm telling you this because there's no service next Sunday, as you might recall, which means that this is our last Sunday service in the, in the year. And so as you're planning end year giving, be thinking about that. Uh, and of course next week is Christmas Eve and you received a Christmas Eve card when you came in but a reminder that there are no services next Sunday morning. Everything will happen on Christmas Eve. And then also a reminder on New Year's Day, we'll have one service, 10 o'clock here at the Essex campus. So we'll have one service at 10 o'clock on Christmas Day, on New Year's Day, and that will be here, and hopefully you can be a part of uh, everything that's taking place. I'll come back to Christmas Eve in just a moment. Uh, one of the things you've noticed, the you announcement: we have a blood drive coming up December 30th. Folks, there's an, a critical, critical need for blood donations right now, and hopefully you'll respond to that call. And I want you to know that when you respond, you're, you're helping in ways that perhaps you cannot see even in our own church family, we've got folks that are going through some medical issues right now that are in desperate need of blood and blood products. One of our children's workers, one of the most faithful children's workers named Kathy, Kathy's going through a a issue of blood cancer and constant transfusions. And one of the ways that you support people like her from our own fellowship is by donating blood. And we would love to see that uh, the upcoming blood drive. We'd love to see it packed full with our people who are committing to those spots. So make a difference. You really can make a difference and please know not only you're making difference in people's lives but it, it, it's seen by the folks from the Red Cross when our church people show up it is noticed by them that the church is committed not just to being a little gathering of church people, but they give of themselves to other people. So if you can participate in in that coming up on the 30th, by all means, join in and participate and help out in any way that you can. Uh, just a reminder for Christmas Eve, uh, this is our last, last good week for the use of this card. You can use it after Christmas Eve, but it seems a little flat, just so you know. It's a Christmas Eve invite. I wanna encourage you to again invite someone In fact, knowing where we're heading on Christmas Eve, I want to challenge you. If you know someone someone in your in your realm of friends or family coworkers you know someone who in this past year has gone through something has gone through the unexpected have gone through some moment that they just never never could have seen it coming i want you to invite them to come on christmas eve we're going to talk about just those types of moments in our lives and if you're thinking well i don't know anyone who's gone through that in this past year well then think about someone who might go through it this year Duh, which means anyone because any one of us are going to go through things that we just don't, can't possibly see coming. So get ready for the coming year or look back in this past year with some encouragement. Uh, invite folks. You've heard me say it over and over again. You'd be amazed at who will say yes if you just invite them. You have all sorts of choices throughout the afternoon uh, into the evening on our campus, on North Avenue campus, and you might be surprised at who just might say yes and decide to come with you. So hopefully you'll use Christmas Eve to continue to tell the story of Jesus. Now, this morning, we're going to continue. We're just one week away. We're one week away from Christmas. Doesn't seem possible for every child, of course. This is going to be one long week for every every adult with children. It's going to go way too fast. You're going to run out of time, um, but that's just the nature of the week. It's finally here, and we're going to continue our series, and it's a good thing Christmas is finally getting here because, man, we need a little Christmas. It is just a different culture today during the Christmas season. People seem to be happier, friendlier, more cordial. I mean, we could use a little Christmas all the time. And our theme that we're talking about is we need a little Christmas. And last week in our series, we talked about the fact that we look back in history, waiting for the moment when Jesus came into this world, we saw the picture that the world desperately needed Christmas. The world desperately needed a little Christmas. In fact, we said it this way. The world didn't need a little Christmas. The the world needed a lot of Christmas. The world was in such a dark place. It was all set up for the moment when Jesus would come into this world, when God would send his son. We talked about the fact that God had all the pieces set up, everything in place, just perfectly for that moment. And we're going to continue in our theme this morning. Now, the book of Matthew begins by giving us the family tree of Jesus. It starts with Abraham. Matthew begins with Abraham and goes all the way through Mary and Joseph. And of course, Matthew was a good Jewish boy. Now remember, only two of the Gospels give us the story of the birth of Christ Matthew's Gospel does, and Luke. Christmas Eve, we'll talk about Luke a little more. This morning, we're going to look at the story from Matthew. Mark and John don't pick up the story of Jesus until year 30. Till Jesus is in his ministry years. Now, after the family tree, after the genealogy of Jesus, and I've preached on that through the years where Matthew gives the whole lineage of Jesus. After that, he, he begins with his story, but he begins with a statement that would kind of tell us as if he's ask, answering a question. He gives us the story of Jesus, and he starts it as if he's actually answering somebody's question. You say, well, what's the question? Well, just imagine if you're sitting down, you have a chance to sit down with Matthew. You've now heard the story of Jesus. You don't have all the parts, but you've heard enough, and you're sitting down with Matthew, and one of the things I think you might ask him would be this. You know, what I'm trying to figure out, so how did Jesus come to be? How did the whole birth of Jesus come, you know, happen? How did did he come into an existence? And in fact, that's exactly the way Matthew starts. It's as if you're in a conversation or he's in a conversation, someone, and he answers the question because here's how he begins in Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. And this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. So it's just as if you're in a conversation and I could hear him saying, man, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, this is the way the birth of the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So Matthew starts right from the very beginning by letting us know that as a Jewish man himself, he believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. His opening statement is, this is the story of how Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been waiting for, longing for, and watching for, for generations. He says, this is how the birth of the Messiah came to be. Now, Before we get into the text, into the story, let me give you some basic Bible knowledge. Hopefully, let me give you a couple nuggets here that when you walk out, you go, man, I didn't even know that or I never really thought of that. I'm seeing it perhaps for the first time. So let me give you some Bible knowledge for a moment. So just stick with me. Now, I've read this myself and studied it, so it it wasn't original me, but when I was reading it and reading other writers, you kind of go, oh man, that is incredibly insightful and helpful. So here you go. Now, the word Messiah is actually a Hebrew word. And the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah is what? Anybody know? Christ. The Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah is Christ. So it might surprise some of you to know that Christ was not Jesus last name. He wasn't married to he wasn't born to, you know, Mary and Joseph Christ. Jesus Christ means Messiah. Now Christ or the Christ is actually the Greek word for this Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah, the future king that the Jews had been waiting for and longing for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, I'm not trying to ruin Christmas by any means for you, but if you want to be honest with the story, we've probably used the wrong name of Jesus throughout all of our Christmas stories and Christmas songs. Now, Jesus is actually a Latin translation of the Greek translation of this word, Yeshua. So, Jesus is actually the Latin translation of this word, of this name, Yeshua. Now, some of you know that, some of you didn't, but some of you have been around for the church for a while know that we go back in time and look at the, the biblical name of Jesus, it would be Yeshua. In fact, some people who kind of arrive at that kind of like to let the people know that you know that. And Sometimes even a little arrogance. Through the years, you know, I've been talking to people and I say, oh, Jesus Christ. I go, well, I think you mean Yeshua? It's kind of like... No, I mean Jesus, just so you know. I mean Jesus, but yeah, I got it. And so some of you kind of feel like, oh, I know Yeshua. Okay, so you got that piece. I got it. Now, it's at this point that it gets kind of important, and it's very interesting in the storyline. Now, in both Hebrew and Greek, in their alphabet, they don't have the letter J. Some of you know that already. There's no letter J, so there's no, no J to pronounce in either one of those alphabets. That's why we don't have J, we just have Yah, Yeshua, not Joshua, but Yeshua. Now, Yeshua is Hebrew, and in that word Yeshua, it actually had other names associated with it. You see, on this side of Christmas, we look at Yeshua and go, ah, Jesus. But on that side of Christmas, Yeshua actually meant something else. Now you say, well, what did it mean? Well, it had a different name attached to it. See, if you take the J, ja, like we have, you know, the, we have a J, if you take J ja, and you put it in front of yah what do you get? You get Ja Shua. Joshua. We get Joshua. Now, to be honest, even though this might mess up your Christmas story a little bit in Christmas songs, if you really want to be accurate, you shouldn't be singing like Jesus loves me. It ought to be Yeshua loves me. And if you really want to be accurate, you got to be jo- Joshua loves me. So I tried singing that in my head. It just doesn't work. So stick with Jesus loves me and you'll be fine. But it should be Yeshua if you really want to be accurate and correct. But don't do that. Now, this is why this is important. To understand the significance of the Christmas story, to understand the significance of the Christmas narrative of the coming of the Messiah, you have to know what kind of Messiah the Jews were looking for. You got to know exactly what they were waiting for and who they were waiting for. You see, they weren't waiting and looking for another Moses. Go back in their history, Moses was an incredible leader, but Moses was a lawgiver. Moses was a negotiator. And they weren't looking for another Moses. They weren't looking for more laws or more rules. Man, they had more rules they knew what to do with. And on top of that, they weren't looking for a negotiator. What they were looking for, what they were waiting for, what they were longing for, is they were waiting and longing for a warrior. They wanted a general. They wanted someone who would lead them into battle, would lead them into victory. Someone who would not be afraid to take on Rome. Don't forget you got the Roman Empire, you got the Roman army. Someone who would lead them to take on Rome, and Roman rule, and beat the Romans. Set them free by force and set up this glorious new kingdom of Israel. Now, you know who Joshua was in biblical history? Joshua was a warrior. Joshua was a warrior king, a warrior leader, a fierce, a fierce leader. In fact, he took them, you know, Moses got them out of Egypt, but Moses didn't get them into the promised land. Who got them in the promised land? Joshua. Who took them across in the promised land and went to the Canaanites and conquered the Canaanites and everyone else who stood against them? Joshua. Joshua was the warrior. Joshua was the deliverer. Make sure you get this. It is no accident that Yeshua and Joshua and Jesus are all in the same sentence, all in the same word. That's not an accident. Now, I got to tell you, that little nugget alone, that's worth the price of admission you pay to get in here today. In fact, you didn't pay to get in, did you? So that's worth the offering. In fact, that's, that's million-dollar stuff right there. So I'm thinking in the end, we bring the offering plate back. Let's go for a million because it was worth it right there. Some of you didn't know that, but Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, all together make sense in the story because they were looking for the next Joshua. So it made sense that Yeshua was coming. They were excited for the next leader that would free them. Now let's look at our story, Matthew 1. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So let's begin to unpackage, unwrap that a little bit. So Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they actually came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Kind of an interesting statement. She was found to be pregnant. Now, you do know that being pregnant, this pregnant thing, would not have been a private conversation with, uh, with Joseph. You know, we think in our terms today, you have a young couple and they're dating and they had sex and all of a sudden there's a, a, a suspected pregnancy and there'd be a private conversation between the couple. If you know something about the history and the context, chances are very, very good that there was not a private con- uh, conversation about this between Mary and Joseph. In fact, what's most likely is that Mary's family knew she was pregnant and Joseph's family probably knew that she was pregnant before Joseph got brought into the conversation. I'll explain why in just a moment. Now they were pledged to be married and if you've been in the church for any length of time through the years you would know this piece of the story. In that culture a young boy and a young girl were pledged to be married together. The marriage was prearranged. which means that at the age of 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, anywhere in that, in that age frame a young boy, young girl would be pledged together to be married. A commitment would be made. Uh, if a kid got 16 or 17, not pledged to be married, you know, something wasn't quite right there because it would typically happen very, very much younger. So between then, when they were pledged to be married and when they were actually married, would be anywhere from a year to three to four or five years. You say, well, what would determine the amount of years? What would determine on the age? If we're talking about a very young girl and boy being pledged to marry, it would probably be four or five years before the marriage took place. If they were a little older, it would be a shorter period of time. But it would be at least a year, and if not longer, between when they were pledged and committed to the fact that they were actually married. Now, as many of you might know, in the Jewish culture at that time, pledged to be married was as good as married as far as the commitment. Neither party, groom or bride, could say, ah. I don't want to get married and just call it off. Doesn't work like it does here today. You return the ring, have a nice conversation, say, oh, now we're done with this. Doesn't happen. In that culture, they had to go through the whole legal process to get a divorce because they were committed to be married together. So during this time, Mary is found to be pregnant. Now, again, I put in context for you there was no pregnancy test, no prenatal meetings with the doctor. Chances are good she's showing chances are good her body has changed and she's showing she got a baby bump and you can't explain that right away and yet she can explain it so the moment comes to explain what's taking place and as I said chances are good that Mary's family found out before Joseph and perhaps Joseph's family found out before him because here's how it would work during that time of being pledged to be married at some point in time not right away but at some point in time the bride would actually move into the groom's house and family with his family so months to a year before the actual wedding the the bride would actually move in and live with the groom's family and groom's parents so if she's pregnant found out to be pregnant chances are good that they might know and in conversation with her own family they might know before joseph gets brought into the conversation now in a previous generation so not too far before this, this moment in time in history, if a young girl such as Mary was found to be pregnant, who was engaged and pregnant from someone else's child, in a previous generation, you know what the punishment would be? She'd be stoned. Previous generation, she'd be stoned. But man, they're very advanced now, and so they don't stone them. So that's off the table, so jo- Joseph isn't thinking about that. But he still has to make a decision. And, and while he's thinking about what to do in this moment, because the law gives him options, while he's thinking what to do, there's another piece to this puzzle that comes in. And that is his fiance has one crazy story. It'd be a lot easier if she was just pregnant and she could tell you the guy that got her pregnant. But in this case, she's got one crazy story. And imagine how the story goes when Mary tells her family. I need to tell you, mom and dad, that I'm pregnant. And I can see mom and dad going, oh, I can't believe it. Who's the boy? What One of these crazy boys in this dumb village of ours have done this thing. And she goes, oh, no, no, it's not a boy. God did it. (laughs) Oh, thank you, honey that helps with the story to the neighbors We'll just tell them that you didn't sleep with anyone but God did this thing so it's a crazy story right I mean, it's, a, it's just one nuts of a story so you've got Joseph in the middle of this thing finds out she's pregnant and as she's telling him she's pregnant she's telling him the same story and by the way there's no guy I'm pregnant because of the Holy Spirit so Joseph's got his hands full here he's in a real spot and you get some great insights into him He's in a real spot. I mean, he's got this crazy fiancé with a crazy story. And the law told him what to do. And don't forget, it said that Joseph was faithful to the law. So the law was very specific. And the law said that such a woman should be put to public shame. Such a woman who would do this would need to be made a public spectacle. She would need to be confronted. Joseph was, didn't have to marry her. He could, but everyone would say, But why would you? Why would you marry someone who's been unfaithful to you even before the marriage? But on top of that, he was instructed by the law to make her a public example of this kind of behavior being wrong. So nothing about the guy, just the girl. So Joseph is struggling. He's not going to marry her, but he doesn't want to do what the law says. And the law says to expose her to public disgrace. So he's kind of in a spot here. He doesn't really want to marry her. That's not the plan. But he also doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So this guy's got a heart. And if you think about it, what he's struggling with is a struggle that we oftentimes will have. His struggle is, do I go with law or do I go with mercy? Some of you are real law people. And it's real clear. Stick with the law. Right is right and wrong is wrong and black and white and stick with the law. Some of you are real mercy people. Oh, let's just give a little slack over here. So that's exactly where he's at. Law or mercy. Law or mercy. Now he's leaning towards mercy. Um I'll just divorce her quietly. I mean, the, the law says I can divorce her. I'll just do that, but I'm not going to make a public spectacle. We'll just end it, and we'll both go our separate directions. We'll get the divorce. And in grace wasn't even in the picture here, just mercy in this law. So while he's thinking this through, God shows up. God shows up through an angel. And the angel says to him, Joseph, son of David. Now, he's not David's son, but this is the way that God is reminding him that you're from the family tree of David. He starts by saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Now, that's important because Joseph, of course, would be afraid. Now, you're going to be a little afraid when the angel of God shows up in Sparta to start speaking to you. But if you read the story, you don't get the fact that he's frightened by that. In fact, the angel says, don't be afraid to marry Mary. See, the issue he's struggling with is, how do I do this? How how do I, why would I marry her? How do I believe the crazy story? How do I become part of the spectacle? And so the fear part is that he's in a mess. He doesn't know what to do. A huge mess. And on top of that, it's a small village. It's a small town. Everybody knows everyone else's business. So the angel begins by saying, hey, don't be afraid to do what I'm going to tell you to do next. Which would be comforting to him, I think. Now, not only is she pregnant, but what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, this next part is very, very important to understand. What's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It means she's a virgin. Now, this is pretty critical to get. No one at that time, not one of the Jews who had been looking for the coming of the Messiah, no one, not one single person at that time was expecting a virgin birth thing. You see, we have the virgin birth piece because we're on this side of Christmas and we can look back and we get it. But when they were in it and looking at the other side of Christmas, absolutely no one was expecting or looking for a virgin birth. The verse that Matthew quoted was from Isaiah and Isaiah said this, that a virgin will have a baby and you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. You say, well, right there, he says virgin. Yeah, But here's the problem. If you go back and look at the word that Isaiah used, the word that he used can be used differently in the different way is exactly how they viewed it because that word virgin means young girl, maiden, young lady. You see, no one was expecting virgin birth. Now, why wouldn't they expect a virgin birth? Because it's nuts to think that that's the way it would happen. I mean, that's Why? I mean, no one would think of that because it just doesn't happen. It's just not possible. So no one's thinking virgin birth. They're thinking a young girl or maiden young lady is going to give birth to the Messiah. So in Jewish culture, no one was expecting a virgin birth. In fact, the exact opposite. What they were expecting is that a young girl would be married to a descendant of David and that father, that biological father would give birth to the Messiah because that's what the scriptures taught. Now, as I mentioned last week, the whole virgin birth thing is not a critical part of the story of, to, of God sending to the Jews the Messiah. In fact, it's the opposite. It's a weird twist to the story, it's an odd twist to the story. And as some people believe that the disciples were making up that part of the story to somehow build the case for Jesus, as we talked about last week, I would say this, the virgin birth thing, if you're going to make up a story to give Jesus credibility, the virgin birth thing does not make the story of Jesus more believable, it makes it more unbelievable. It doesn't help the story, but it hurts the story because it's just weird. It's totally out of the realm of possibility. So if you're one of those folks that view us Christians or if you're watching online and you're one of those folks that would view us Christians and thinking, man, those crazy Christians and their whole virgin birth thing, I would say, yeah, probably a little crazy because the story itself is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Now, and as well, as we talked about, it's not the foundation of Christianity. The virgin birth of Jesus is not the foundation of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus, from the empty grave. That's the foundation. So now hear this next statement. The virgin birth hurts the story more than it helps the story if you're trying to create a story that would convince skeptics, right? So if you give me the job, Scott, create a story about how Jesus came into the world that would actually take skeptics and have them buy in. If you ask me to do that, or if I ask you to do that, are you gonna create a story of a virgin birth? Does that help? Any skeptic buy in? No, it doesn't. See, it doesn't make any sense unless, unless it's true. So the, So now picture this. So the angel appears to Mary. You're going to have a son conceived by the Holy Spirit. To Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She, you're going to have a son. She's going to give birth to a son. And you're going to give him the name, what name? Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua. Now let's pretend for just a moment. Let's pretend that when the angel begins to have this conversation with Joseph, that Joseph immediately gets it. Let's just pretend for a moment that all of a sudden the light comes on, Joseph gets all of the thousands of years of history, gets the story of Abraham, he gets it all, and so all of a sudden the light comes on and he's totally engaged with the angel. So here's how the conversation might go in that case. So, you are to give him, the awaited Messiah, the name Joshua, Yeshua, Joseph. Of course. Yes, 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 yes. That makes sense. Joshua. Absolutely. Warrior king. We've been waiting for the warrior king. That's exactly what we need because for hundreds of years we've been under oppression. We've been under oppression by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks. Now Rome's got us oppressed. Absolutely. Angel trying to finish the sentence. Yeah. But listen, he's going to save his people. Of course he is. Of course he's going to save his people. Yes, 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 yes. That's exactly what Joshua did. Joshua saved the people. Joshua came and conquered. Joshua took the people, the Israel, God's people, into the land of Canaan. He killed all of the Canaanites, all the oppressors. Yes, exactly. We know the story of Joshua, angel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But he came to save his people from, yes, yes, I know, I know, I know, to save his people from the oppressors. We know the story of Jericho. The walls coming tumbled down. I mean, that's, that's what he came to do. And now he's going to do the same thing for us with Rome. He's going to save the people, his people, from Rome. Yes, yes, I got it. Listen, angel, we've known this story for 2,000 years. Since Abraham, we've known this story. And I have to be honest with you, we've given up hope along the way because i got to tell you, for the last 1,000 years or so, we haven't seen much of God lately. If you look at our history, God hasn't been real stellar on the whole I'm going to bless you and bless those who bless you. uh, If you haven't noticed, we're in bondage here, but you know what we have? We never gave up hope. And so now here he comes, so we got it. Angel. And I finish the sentence, please. He's coming to save his people from their sins. Come again? Their sins. 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 I have to tell you, that is not in my list of felt needs. I don't don't have this thing inside like, oh, what I really need is someone to save me from my sins. Angel, I got to tell you, there's so many other things. If you look at the hierarchy of needs... I mean, just run through them with you real quick, angel, because maybe you don't, you're not aware of some of the psychological research that we've done here on earth. But let me tell you something. There's a hierarchy of needs. And if you take a look at it, sin's not on, in the hierarchy. I mean, what we need to exist, we need, we need our, our basic needs are physiological. I mean, we need to have a roof over our heads. We need food. We need water. And once that's met, then we need safety and security. We need to know that we're not going to be killed or attacked. And once we're safe, we need to have a sense of community and belonging. We're wired that way. And once we have a community and that kind of sense, then we need to know that we can be somebody. We need to know that we can be all that we can be. We need esteem and respect. So if you look at all that and this need to succeed and you look at the hierarchy of needs that we have, did you notice that saved from sins aren't on the list? It's not a felt need. Now, that's what all the experts tell us, Angel, but you may have missed that. And and Mr. Angel, did you happen to notice that there's no sin there? But part of that is because when maybe you're coming to talk to me, maybe you missed the fact that we have this huge thing called the temple. And see, we have all these rules, and the temple is put up to take care of sin. So you really don't have to worry about that because we've got that covered. We don't need saving from sins. We need savings from Rome. But interesting, Joseph does not respond like that. And I'll make an observation for you. In fact, what's very interesting throughout the entire Bible, people who have encounters, genuine encounters with God, meetings with God, do not respond like that. They don't respond with great debate. They don't respond questioning God. You see, when the angel of God talks to you directly, you don't talk back historically, it just doesn't happen. Through the years of doing pastoral ministry, out, people come to me and say, hey, God appeared to me. I saw God. Now, I, you know, I take it in stride, but there's a little part of me inside that I can hear. I hear those words, God appeared to me, and I look at the Bible, and I want to say, so when he appeared to you, did you like your face melt off? No, well, maybe it wasn't God. Because you see, in every encounter we have with a holy, glorious, righteous God, People don't know what to do with themselves. And then I hear this along the way. You know, I think, I think God told me. Now, let me, let me tell you what I've come to learn through my years of walking with God and dealing with other people walking through God. And years of looking at Scripture. When God speaks, no one ever goes, I wonder if that was God. When God actually speaks, nobody goes, huh, I think maybe that was God. You see, friends, God does not stutter. God is not a ventriloquist. God does not have great fun throwing his voice in one direction to make you look in the other direction to think, wonder if that was God or not. That's not how God works. God does not play hide and seek with his people. God does not say, I have a plan, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to give you all these clues that you have to figure out, and maybe you'll get it right, but maybe you won't. That's not how God works. You see, when God decides to communicate with us, I'll use me. I won't put you in this boat. When God decides to communicate with me, I know it's him. Now you. And when God decides to communicate with you, you will know that it's him. He speaks in terms that I clearly understand. And when he's done, I know exactly what it is I'm supposed to do. I'll give you an instance in our lives. One time in my life, I can say maybe two, but one without any hesitation or clarity. One time in my life, in our lives, in our lives, have we heard God speak very clearly. It was 35 years ago. Uh, Not quite, but pretty close. 35 years ago, we were on a plane. The plane landed. We were coming from Detroit, Michigan, and we were landing in Hartford, Connecticut. We were on that plane landing in Hartford, Connecticut because we were asked to go look at a church in Norwich, Connecticut to consider being their pastor. We were asked a candidate at that church to be their pastor. We knew God was moving us. We didn't know exactly where. So we're on the plane, myself, Diane, and our youngest daughter, Dana. So we landed. Friends, listen. The moment the tires hit the tarmac landing, as soon as it hit, as clearly as you hear my voice, I heard, no, not here. And I knew that it was not here, as in this was not the place. Not here. Hmm. We're taxing, people waiting for us. It's a Wednesday. They got a whole week planned for us to be there and candidate and preach and all those things. And I just heard God say, no, not here. And I didn't doubt that I had heard God say, no, not here. It wasn't the guy behind me. God spoke. So I said to Diane at one point, we're still taxing. I go, you know what? We're not supposed to be here. She said, why? I said, well, because God just told me. She goes, oh, good. I thought it was just me. (laughs) I got to tell you, it doesn't happen very often, but it happened that day. We've got five minutes until we pull up to the gate to figure out what we're going to tell with these people who are waiting for us to talk to us about being their pastor when we know we're not supposed to be there. And admittedly, part of my mind's going, well, then why on earth didn't you tell me this before I got on the plane? (laughs) Right? I mean, we had a sick child at home. We had all sorts of stuff we had to get in place. This was not an easy trip. I'm thinking, God, all you got to do the night before is say, don't go. And I get up and go, great. I didn't want to go anyway. (laughs) But I'm on the plane and I'm landed, and now you tell us? And so when we get a quiet moment, we get to the place we're staying and we have a conversation. And I go, So what are you going to do? I'm going, What do you mean? What am I going to do? What are we going to do? Yeah, I bet it's you. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? I go, well, I can't lie. We have a meeting with the elders that night, and I'm going to tell them that we're not supposed to be here. We'll see how that goes. So we meet with them, and around that story up, real quickly. We meet with them, and that first night, I sit down. They're giving me the whole weeks to plan and whatever. I've got, I got to stop you right there. I, got to, I said, i got to tell you, we're not supposed to be here. Both my wife and I have confirmed that we're not your pastor. I said, now, listen, I am so sorry. I'll take full responsibility for God's error. <laughs> God could have told us ahead of time for whatever reason he didn't, so I'll take, I'll own that. If, you know, we'll, go, we'll leave tomorrow. I'll pay for the tickets. I'm very sorry, but we're not supposed to be here. I said, so we can leave. I said, or have a thought. We could stay and go through the whole week. You uh, know, will finish on Sunday. And I said, and during this time, it would be good for us because you'll challenge my life and speak into my life. And I get to speak into your church. It would be like a free consultation. They said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's do that. So we did that. Sunday night came, our our meeting. I sat down with them. They said, have you changed your mind? Because I got to say right now, we'd like to call you as our pastor. And I said, haven't changed. God's pretty clear. But I will tell you why we're here. I know why. Because I can give you the name of who's supposed to be here. Because I've been here for a week with you. I know exactly who's supposed to be here. I gave him the name. Four weeks later, that guy's in the church. You see, often along the way, we kind of go well what is God doing remember when I said why couldn't he tell us before we got on the plane that's because there was still a purpose for me to be there when God speaks we know that it's him Is that clear now when God speaks no one ever says was that God now you may not obey him when he speaks because don't forget God will not strong arm anyone I could have said we're coming here uh, interesting thing about eight weeks after that we came to this church and said yes because we felt god wanted us here now god will not strong arm you though you don't have to obey him but you're going to know when he speaks so god speaks to joseph in a dream joseph's know it was joseph knows it was god and when he wakes up he goes and does exactly what the angel of the lord had told him to do he took mary home to be his wife and you know the rest of the story now let's end with application I want to explain to you why it is that so many of us, when we read the Christmas story, and we read the words that Jesus came to save us from our sins, why many of us are not moved by that. In fact, many of us are just like those Jews 2,000 years ago who have been waiting for Jesus to arrive. They were, they were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they didn't expect what they would see or, fee- or get. They didn't have a felt need for their sins to be cared for. That's kind of the way we are at. We're not really moved by it because we don't have a real felt need about it. But be sure to hear this. Now listen very carefully. I'm going to read for you exactly what the angel said to Joseph. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is what he said to Mary and Joseph both. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But this is how we hear it. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will forgive his people of their sins. Now, some of you didn't even catch the change. Because many of us completely and quickly interchange, save, and forgive. What I read, what the angel said is he's going to save his people from their sins. And what many of us interject is the word forgive his people, of their sins, and most of us would go, well, is that, isn't that okay? Isn't that good? Please know, be very careful that you do not reduce the Christmas story to the story of forgiveness. For if you reduce the Christmas story to the story of forgiveness, you don't know it, but you set yourself up for a lifetime of repeated failure. Now, let me explain this. When I was studying this week and was reading some of these things, man, it just hit me that I got to make this so clear for some of you because some of you today will be the day where you're set free. Do not reduce the Christmas story to the story of forgiveness. And it kind of goes like this. You see, for so many people, their whole religious life, their whole religious experience goes something like this. Well, nobody's perfect. I mean, we try, but nobody's perfect. Certainly, I'm not perfect. So, oops, I just sinned, but God forgives. And then, oops, I sin again, and for God forgives. And oops, I sinned again, and God forgives. Because you know we're not perfect. I try, but I have my error. You have your oops, sinned again, God will forgive. Our whole Christian experience is a thought process that says, I just can't help it because we're not perfect. And so, oops, there I go again, and God will forgive. Now, please know God will forgive. It's a wonderful thing, but that's not the message of Christmas. That is not the message of the angels to Joseph. The message of Christmas, the message of the Gospels is so much bigger than forgiveness. You see, the message of Christmas is not that Jesus came to forgive people of their sins. He came to deliver people from their sin. He came to save people from sin. He came, catch this, he came to deliver people from the power of sin. And he came to deliver you so you don't have to sin. Isn't that deeper than forgiveness? It is so much deeper. Jesus came in the spirit of Yeshua. He came in the spirit of Joshua, the warrior, to set you free. To set you free from being trapped in the constant pattern of sin. He is so much more than just forgiveness. And all through Jesus' ministry, he was trying to get us to see that. Remember the story? There's a woman caught in adultery. Caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. And the reason they brought her before Jesus is because the law said such a woman should be stoned to death. And they wanted to get Jesus to be the one to say, yes, stone her. Because by doing that, of course, all the, all the people would be against him. So it's an elaborate trap. So they bring this woman before Jesus. And he knows the law. And imagine the people's thoughts and thought process in their hearts. Imagine this woman's heart when Jesus actually says, stone her. Didn't see that coming. Stone her. No one saw that coming. He actually says, okay, agreed. Let's stone her. But, of course, you know the story. And then he adds this one piece. And we'll do this. We'll stone her. But whoever has never sinned before, your whole life, never sinned, you throw the first stone. And immediately, every head goes down, every rock gets dropped, and everybody walks away. Because there's nobody qualified. Well, there's one, and he's not picking up a stone. No one's qualified. And then he says this, this famous conversation with this woman. He says, well, where are your accusers? Does no, one accuse, does no one condemn you? And her answer was, no one, sir. No one. And then this famous statement where he goes, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now, please know that statement right there, neither do I condemn you, that's forgiveness piece. And if it just stops right there, it's still a really good story. And a powerful story. But it doesn't stop there because there's more. Because the story of Christ and the story of Christmas is more. And then Jesus says to her these famous words, which every one of us should be asking a question about and maybe a little nervous about, because then he says to her, what? Go and sin no more. And maybe a modern translation says it this way, go and leave your life of sin. And if you read that story, every one of us ought to be saying, what? Is that possible? Is that, did you, did you mean that? I mean, think about this. Was Jesus putting on her a burden that she couldn't possibly carry off? She couldn't get this right? Would he do that? If not, then you got to think, wait a minute, is, that possible? is it possible to leave your life of sin? Is it possible to go and sin no more? I mean, can I actually say no to sin? You see, folks, forgiveness just gets you to zero. And, and zero is not real great when you look at what more is there. But God wants to do more than get you back to zero. Jesus, after this moment with this woman, is in a debate with the Pharisees. And then he says this. He says, you know, a thief comes only to kill, to steal, to kill and destroy. You know, that's what a thief does. And everybody knows what thieves That's what thieves do. They come to kill, to steal and destroy. And then Jesus compares the thief to himself. And then he says this. But I, I have come that they might have life. And have it to its fullest. Now listen to this. I have come that you would have life and you would have life to its fullest. Does that sound like zero to you? Does that sound like just getting back to zero? To having a life where you fail and you get you back to zero and you fail and you get back to zero and you fail and you you get back to zero. Does that sound like zero when he says, but I came to give you a life that is rich and full and that you live it to its fullest. You need to hear this this morning. You have a choice. We have a choice in how to live our lives. Listen carefully. And you have the choice that you can decide that sin will not control your life. Some of you are so defeated because your experience to this point has been, well, I try and I fail and I get forgiveness and I try and I fail because you have never realized that the real Christmas story is not about he came to forgive you of your sins, but he came to deliver you from having to sin. Listen to this from Romans 6. Do not let sin control the way you live and do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Now catch this last part. Sin is no longer your master for you no longer live under the requirements of the law Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when you gave your life to Christ, when you invited Jesus Christ to be your Savior, not the Savior of the world, but your Savior, immediately your sin was taken away and forgiven. I mean, that's a great story all by itself. On top of that, immediately, you were given eternal life. Immediately, your place in heaven is secure. Man, that's a great story. But there's more. And some of us have missed the more. The more is in that moment when you said yes to Jesus, you were given the power to be free from the power and the bondage of sin not just forgiveness freedom this is the message of the gospel this is the message of Christianity this is the message of Christmas that with Christ you have a new master in just a moment I'm going to invite you if you're so inclined and for some of you it will be a turning point day some of you might want to go through motions but I want to go through motions but for some of you it will be a real deal moment here for some of you, it will be a turning point. If you're a Christian, and it seems to you that your religious experience has been what I talked about earlier, where you go through this life, well, I try and I fail and I forgive, and I try and I fail and I forgive, and that feels like the pattern of your life, then maybe you need to hear this. In fact, I believe, I had this great moment in, my, in worship about three in the morning when I was working on my sermon. I believe some of you are here today I'm purposed by God to hear this next statement. That demon that you battle in your life, it's not your master. The lust that you battle, some of you guys, the lust that you battle, it is not your master. Anger and bitterness, it's not your master. Alcohol, it's not your master lack of self-control in whatever area of your life, it is not your master. Drugs, prescription drugs, not your master. Eating disorder, not your master. Jealousy, it's not your master. That habit that you can't break, it is not your master. That sickness, that disease that you're battling right now, the doctor's going, boy, I don't have an answer for it. Even if there's not a good answer for the doctor, it is not your master. Some of you, anger problems. And you would say, "Ah, oh, I just can't help it. It's not your master. Self-destructive lifestyle. It's not your master. The need for approval from other people that takes you down any path just to get their approval. It's not your master. This is your moment. This is your Christmas message that he came to save you from your sin to deliver you from that feeling that you just can't help it. You're trapped and you're caught. If Jesus were here in person today, I think he would say this. You get to decide, but I need you to know you do not have to live as if sin or something else is your master. I came to tell you this morning, go and leave your life of sin. So here's how we're going to end. I don't exactly know how it's going to play out. I got to tell you. Here's what we're going to do team's going to sing a song and listen to the words of the song to this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now and ever is my plea oh the chains are released I can sing I am free yet not I but Christ in me here's how we're going to end not going to have you stand you stay seated for some of you you're getting for the first time that you can win you don't have to go through the pattern and that you have a new master and if you're making that discovery and today you want to make a statement that says you know what I follow him no longer will this thing be my master then as they're singing you stand up where you're at and I'll tell you right now whoever goes first you're going to stand by yourself for a little bit and whoever else might stand you might be standing all by yourself the rest of the room and you say well I don't think I like that oh well because you know the whole rest of us aren't fighting your battle we're fighting our own battle So if you want to win your battle, here's your moment to say to God, I'm standing up because you're my master now. And then in a minute, I'll call us all to stand because it's a song that begs to be sung. But today could be a turning moment for you. So if you feel that moment, wherever you're at, you stand as they sing. And then we'll all join you in a little bit. So for those of you who made the discovery today for the first time that you have been set free, start living as free, stop living in defeat, you got a new master, his name is Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, he came to deliver you, let me pray, Father dismiss us in your grace, I pray that today as we leave this place for so many people, this would have just been a moment, but a moment that's marked in time. A moment when they can go back and look and say, hey, listen, yep, forgiveness is a great thing. Thank you, Jesus. But more importantly, I am no longer a slave to that which controls me. I belong to Jesus. What a Christmas story. Dismiss us in your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.